Welcome to 39-Minute Conversations. Please wait for your host to begin this meeting. Your meeting is now being recorded. All right, are you there? Can you see me? Can you hear me? Here. Um, There we go. Hello. Hello. Thank you for being here. No, No problem. Happy to be here. Before we get started, um, that you uh, your um, Zoom cartoon your on your image screen, adorable. Haven't seen one of those before. Thank you very much. Yeah, did you draw Thank that, or have or did a friend draw that? No, that was actually made by um, the a, a show I worked at had a cartoon team. Oh, and cool. uh, I, I, I there was a chance that I was going to be playing myself in a cartoon, <laughs> and That's... even though that didn't that didn't happen, they sent me the the cartoon so I could have it. It was very nice of them. That's the dream, though, to play yourself in a cartoon like it's that's yeah. two things actors love is not having to be on set and also just and um, playing themselves like it's double easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for being here. I do. Before we get started, I have to get through a quick ad read. I hope that's OK. I apologize. No problem. No problem. <laughs> this week's episode of 39 Minute Conversations is not technically presented by Hoka. The WGA strike marches on, I assume. I mean, hopefully not. This episode won't be out for a couple of weeks. But at the time of this recording, we're still going strong. And let's be real, in two weeks, it's probably still happening. But in the previous month, we've seen the effect the strike has had on the economics of Hollywood. The shutdowns have already cost the studios more money than what we're asking for collectively for all of our thousands of union members. We're hitting them where it hurts. We're seeing the stock prices of the studios fall as a result. But we're not hurting every business. One stock that's probably doing pretty well as a result of the WGA strike is Hoka. If you've been on the picket lines, you've probably seen as many pairs of Hoka sneakers as you've seen blue WGA shirts. Honestly, maybe more. And you know what? I get it. The first couple of weeks of the strike, I was suffering. And we're out there walking 5, 10 miles a day. My feet are killing me. One of the toes was more blister than toe. You're welcome for that image. And that's when a friend on the picket line told me that Hoka's aren't just trendy-ass rider shoes. They're the best shoes for being on your feet all day. So despite being on strike, trying to save my money because I'm probably the poorest I've ever been, I invested in a pair. And was it worth it? Eh, yeah, kinda. I don't think any shoe is built for 10 miles a day, but Hoka is the closest I've found. So if you want your feet to feel slightly better and also fit in with all the other cool riders around you, get yourself a pair of Hoka's. And hello, I am Brad T. Arnold, and this is 39 Minute Conversations, a podcast about reconnecting with old friends and making new ones, but I've only got 39 minutes to do it because I will not be paying for Zoom Pro. We're in the middle of a new series where I'm sitting down with people who are out there on the picket line, standing in solidarity with the WGA. If you're on the lines, you're interested in being a future guest, please email 39minuteconversations at gmail.com. My guest today is a two-time Emmy-winning writer who has written for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, and Game Theory with Bomani Jones. He's also a council member of the Writers Guild of America East, a member of the 2023 Negotiating Committee, and host of the WGA East podcast on writing. He also co-hosts Yubnub, a Star Wars podcast for Star Wars fans who actually like Star Wars. Please welcome Greg Iwinski. Thank you so much. I, I'm now officially tired. After hearing all the things I'm doing, I didn't realize <laughs> I was doing all that stuff. <laughs> Not to mention two kids. Like I could have gone on. I could make you sound like a like a damn hero, just like trudging yeah, through I everything. Am. 
Just a tired person who says yes to things when I get asked. That's, that's all I am. <laughs> well, I appreciate that because that's my bread and butter on this podcast is people reluctantly saying yes. So thank you for doing so. <laughs> yeah, um, happy to be here. Uh, happy to have you. Greg, in 40 minutes, obviously, we're going to be best friends. But in this moment, we don't really know each other that well. We have a mutual friend, former guest of the podcast, Gilbert Galone, who hooked us up for this episode. Um, so I'm really excited to chat with you, get to know you. Thank you for taking the time, even though, like you said, you're incredibly busy. Um, most of the time, I try to start these interviews the same way. Like you, I used to do a lot of improv and sketch comedy and all that. We're from similar worlds in that way. But the pandemic uh, turned me into a bit of a shut-in, started doing this podcast to have some semblance of uh, performing and a social life. So I just want to start with how have the last few years been for you? What did you learn about yourself? How are you maybe different than you are than you were three or so years ago? Um, I think I'm about a thousand years older. Um, <laughs> I went through the pandemic in Manhattan with a mm -hmm. one year old. Um, oh, my God. So I, I think I found the worst way to do COVID, um, at least uh you know, the worst way to do it that didn't involve anyone passing away in my yeah. immediate family, which was great. Um but it was really bad. And uh, you know, it was weird, you know, writing late night from your house and not seeing anybody. It's it's been one of the interesting things about the strike in that it's also a huge area and time of uncertainty, mm -hmm. but it's uh so much more social than the pandemic was. So we are going through it together and we're able to see each other much more often. But yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like, uh, I mean, it was obviously a really, um, it was a weird time for me personally, professionally. I went from having a, uh, the start of pandemic, um, like a one year old kid to then have at the end of the pandemic, having two kids and, and having two Emmys and having worked at a, a couple other shows. And, um, mm -hmm. just, there was a lot of life in that life. Um, do you plan on having, now, do you plan on having one kid per Emmy? Is that is that uh, well? Uh, I would say I plan on having one Emmy per kid. So if I have <laughs> another kid, I will then have to hustle extra hard to go get another Emmy. So I can just because when I die, I will just hand them to them and go. Well, I won't hand them, but um, the robot that contains my essence will hand them each an Emmy. I like that. It's a good strategy. Um, obviously there, uh, there's one big story that people are tuning in to hear about to get your perspective on, uh, the only thing on a lot of people's minds right now. And I am of course referring to the fantasy basketball league that we are both in, um, yes. as a condition of setting up this interview, Gilbert, who runs that league said that there is one question that I do have to ask you. Oh, great. Um, Here we go. Yeah. Okay. During the season, you traded James Harden for Devin Booker. This trade, according to Gilbert, resulted in fellow Last Week Tonight writer Mark Kramer being number one in the league for most of the season. Gilbert insists this was collusion between colleagues on the same show, trying to set up Kramer to win, perhaps split the prize money. What do you have to say in response to this allegation? I mean, I think Gilbert, of all people, should uh, support my helping Mark Kramer because, uh, I, as he and Mark both know, uh, I have a deep love for Filipino people and Filipino culture. So okay. I don't know why why he's doing this this Filipino on Filipino violence here. They, it's you know really um, everybody should be getting along. And also, I am from Phoenix. I am wearing a sun shirt as we speak. Mm -hmm. uh, I obviously wanted I want Devin Booker and uh, instead of James Harden um, mm -hmm. because. Uh, Devin Booker's on my team, and that makes it easier to root uh, for them. I'm happy that Mark was successful for much of the season. Um, he and I are, are uh, we text about basketball very often. Mm -hmm. 
and uh it's um yeah he's a knicks fan i'm a Suns fan he lives in la i live in new york it's a it's a weird mix of worlds <laughs> but yeah it's a. Uh, no, no, I, I, there was no, uh, no collusion. Okay, uh, okay. I don't, I forget what else Trump said when he wrote that down on his little notebook, <laughs> but no collusion. Comey is wrong. Gilbert perfect is wrong. Call, perfect trade. It was a perfectly legitimate trade. It was okay. just me and Mark and, uh, Vladimir Putin just in a room. <laughs> uh, I, don't I am think... horrible at fantasy basketball. I said that up front when I was harangued into joining this league. I said, <laughs> I want you guys to know that a third of the way through this, I will forget it exists and I will <laughs> never check it again. And that is absolutely what happened. I didn't finish much better than you in the league and I checked it every day. So I think I'm nice. nice. <laughs> yeah. If I um, was not last, that's amazing because I did not, I forgot it happened in 2022. <laughs> I don't think you were last, um, so congrats on that. Um, how are you feeling about the uh, the playoffs this year? You're a Suns fan that, you know, as a Clippers guy, I can't root for the Suns, but I also am not, like, praying for your downfall or anything. I think as Suns, Suns fans, are um, we are people who we're from Phoenix. It's a very mm -hmm. hot city. It's a very relent unrelenting city. It's a city where the sun causes you pain the wind mm -hmm. is hot it causes you pain your pool is 90 degrees it causes we're used to embracing pain life is full of <laughs> cactus and gila monsters and you know things don't hurt you and that's what the team is is that it, much like a cactus you're drawn in by the beauty of the suns you try to get close to them and then they stab you and you just can't get the needles out and so mm -hmm. you know i think a lot of fans had kind of put the team away as a horrible team with a horrible owner and that was fine. And then all of a sudden we decided to get really good. And a lot of people had second thoughts about, you know, this decades of pain. Mm -hmm. And now I think we're back at the same place we were where it's like, well, <laughs> they're just going to hurt me. Yeah. I don't know what's yeah. going to happen with this coach thing. I don't know what's going to happen. I, yeah, I, that bummed I, me out. I like Monty Williams a lot. I was very surprised by that move. I think Monty Williams is going to be a great college coach. I think that, um, and I say that only in that I think, even in his vocabulary and the way he talks about basketball, he is a coach who is there to raise good men, mm -hmm. but that, which is very important. But it, when you are dealing with a job and not like a college situation, mm -hmm. your job is to come up with adjustments and schemes and motivations that get you, your players there. You have to man manage and you also have to coach. And I think his man management ran thin because you know, one of the things that I always noticed is that Monty calls the Phoenix Suns a program. Mm. Didn't call it a team. Interesting. Didn't call it an organization. It was called their program. And and I think that that is a college, that is a revelation of a college paternal mindset. He's there to be parental to them. And that is not what they, this team, maybe it's what they needed to bring the floor up, but the, to, to move the ceiling higher, it's not what they need. You need someone who says, I don't, care if you like me or if we all like each other or we all get along i'm going to give you what it takes to win and the winning will make the rest of it worth it um and i think it's time for them to find that kind of coach uh i don't know if that's going to be nick nurse i don't know if that's uh, it's definitely not going to be coach bud um you know but i don't and i hope it's not doc rivers uh so i don't i don't know what's going to happen but i think they're a group of guys i think about it a lot because there's about as many nba players as there are late night writers Mm -hmm. and, and I do I think there are some similarities in how you move teams and you work for different coaches and they have different offensive schemes and defensive schemes and you know you have to adjust and you know sometimes you think you should be the point guard and they have you standing in the corner to shoot threes like you know there's a lot of similarities but 
uh, with the Suns, you see guys who are so talented and so set up for success, but they are they have been given permission to dismiss failure in a way that's really disturbing. Sure. In I that, mean, that you should be, uh, and, and this isn't about being performative to me, a fan. It's mm-hmm. not about you have to say the right things in the press. It's about, look, man, I can see your body language. I can see your effort. I can see when you talk to the media and you don't like these, what you post on social media, these things are, are out there and we all want to go home and have our job just be a job. I understand that, but I don't think there's evidence that they hate losing. Mm. I don't think that they're them getting blown out this year or last year. I don't think it that they hate it because mm-hmm. you hear from them and these, and I don't know where it comes from. I don't know which player it is that, that has spread this philosophy, but you hear these, you know, very much like, well, you know, like there's ups and downs and you do your best and, you know, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's just a game and, you know, like, you know, uh, you just got to get out there and get the next one. And I don't, I don't, I think in a, in, it's, it's an even more cynical version of, I think Giannis is genuine. There's no failure in basketball. Right. Because although I don't totally agree with Giannis, what he said about, you know, I, I am, I was selling stuff on the streets of Greece and now I am an MVP bazillionaire who got all my brothers into the league and I didn't win the finals this one year, but might win it next year. That's not failure. I mean, I do think the season's a failure, but he is not. And I think that what he said was important. I think there's a yeah, cynical version of that. There's a cynical version of that where you know you're a failure mm-hmm. and you know you failed, but you will use that same kind of language to excuse yourself. Mm-hmm. And and that 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 is what troubles me the most about the Suns, and I think has to change either through roster movement or through new coaching and a new GM. Yeah, that language of you know I'm not a failure, life is not a failure. It does sound very familiar from when I call home to my parents, especially <laughs> especially at this time. Um, yeah, so let's get into the WGA strike. I I. I I'm glad we got to spend some time in basketball and not talk about the strike yes. for a little <laughs> while. But I do that think we should delight. get into it. It was a delight. Um, first, just, you know, as a human being during this really crazy time, how are you holding up out there on the lines and everything that you're doing for the WGA? Um, one of the things that I've, I've told people, uh, and my family knows this is that I don't, this is either a thing that will like go in my book one day as like a great life practice or the thing that was a horrible mistake I fixed in therapy, but I don't really ask myself how I'm doing. Hmm. Um, I don't, because not because I'm afraid of the answer, but whatever the answer is doesn't change what I have to get done. Yeah. So, and that's not, I'm not trying to be like podcast six hour day, like <laughs> hack your bare mind mindset. I just go, <laughs> how am I doing? I'm probably kind of good and kind of bad and a little tired and a little hungry and a little happy. I'm probably a lot of things, mm-hmm. but I don't really have time to stop and go like, how, how am I? If I was really bad, I would be bad enough to say I'm bad. Yeah. So I, I, in a vague, I'm in a vague place of good and I'm busy and tired. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so I, yeah, I never really take the time to sit down unless there's some kind of red flag going off in my brain or body telling me, oh, this is a, a, a real problem. Um, and I think part of that is because I have a really great family. You know, I've got like my kids and, and my wife are wonderful. And I truly, you know, like it, there is no, forcing myself to like them or like being around them or be, like sure. I, it was, one of the it was crazy how you know in the pandemic i spent every day i think for the first 18 months of my son's life i was 
well, I guess after the pandemic. So for the whole first 18 months of the pandemic, I was with him every day, mm-hmm. every day, all day. We were all, we were not ever in a different place. And so, except like when I went to the store. So, you know, that kind of bonding, I, I love my family and being able to come back to a family that all loves each other and gets along. Like it is a huge bedrock mm-hmm. um, for doing this stuff because yeah, we're doing a lot. I mean, I, um, you know, the negotiating committee right now is trying to keep abreast of what is happening and being ready to go as soon as the AMPTP wants to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they came out and said that because they're talking to the directors, they can't talk to us, which I um, am not sure is accurate legally. I'm, I think that they could do both at the same time. They just don't by a matter of practice. Right. Um, but they uh, they're talking to the directors. The actors are up on June 6th and then all both those contracts are up June 30th. So there's a lot of things happening mm-hmm. that, you know, you're kind of staying ready for his NEGCOM. And then on the I'm on Writers Guild East Council. So we have a bunch of stuff going on there, obviously, not just with the strike, but also that like we just got MSNBC organized mm-hmm. um, in our in our uh, online media sector or I mean, in our news sector. So. There, you know, there's all that going and we've got a new episode of the late night um, thing that we've decided to make um, uh, contract TK that's coming up tonight, cutting that. So, yeah, there's just there's a zillion things happening. I've never been on my phone more. That's what I would say. Even though I'm also outside walking more, my mm-hmm. screen time is just. And it's cr- it's like I'm on more phone calls than I've ever been on before, mm-hmm. before. like actual talking on the phone. phone. I've calls. heard of so, that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's wild. And now I'm just using my phone all the time, just a zillion um, uh, phone calls. But no, I mean, I think uh, the in terms of the strike and stuff, I mean, we're in week four now. I'm not sure what week we'll be in when you're hearing this, but um, six, I think, hopefully. I mean, probably yeah. if we're still going, which I'm sure we probably yeah. will be, which it, which it likely will, uh, mm-hmm. unless it'd be great. Yeah, let's let's make a deal. Um, it's uh, I think the the goals are to keep all of the writers united and motivated and mm-hmm. positive. Because it is hard, especially now when you're getting into week four, you're talking about a couple missed checks. You're talking about rent is due next week. You're talking mm-hmm. about real things that are going to hit people. And hopefully people are taking advantage of the resources like the, the you know, there is a strike fund for WGA members, mm-hmm. which are interest free. You can get an interest free loan. Um, and there, the entertainment community fund is doing grants. And there's there are people setting up free grocery programs and all sorts of things. Um that that uh can can help people and i know the laws in new york and la or california are a little different but um losing work due to a strike action you can get some unemployment benefits in some states that way new york so, you can i think la i don't think you can in, in california yeah i think i yeah. think it's a new york only only thing um which might which i am not sure if that's based on where your show is or where you live i wish i had better answers for that but just to say that there are a lot of resources i hope people mm-hmm. are taking advantage of because um it is hard. It's hard and it's, re- and it's real and it's not just uh, a couple fun days of walking. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, but I think that people are really motivated. I think that mm-hmm. it is, uh, what's most shocking is how the studios are. They just continue to step on rakes in ways that motivate labor <laughs> to realize that they truly do not respect us at all. Yeah. No, it's, it's honestly been kind of mind blowing. Obviously, you know, we're writers and we're good at, controlling narratives and, and getting messaging out there, but just how bad they've been at it and the, on the, on the AMPTP side has kind of blown my mind a little bit. Like they are in such a bubble and, or don't like, it just seems like they're at least they're not presenting a good argument. I I don't, I don't want to say that their position is necessarily indefensible, even though to me it is, but they're not good, doing a good job of defending it in the press at all. 
it's been wild. Yeah, I mean, I I don't, I don't think you see a lot of response. Um, and I I think there's a there's um, it's a very interesting thing because look, we're in the writers' guild and we're negotiating with these companies, so it is a two party negotiation. Mm-hmm. And what what the thoughts outside of those two parties are important for public opinion and other stuff, but they don't ultimately change that we have to sit down and make a business deal right with each other. So so I don't put a ton of stock into you know, YouTube commenters and random blue check people on Twitter who are like, sure. oh, you should do this or this is how the industry is going to work. It's like, well, it, you're both wrong because you're not in it. And also you're wrong because it, you have no impact here. Right. This is not, you know, um, it, it's not the business that you're in. But the idea, too, that the the studios wanted the strike so they could force majeure everybody. I think everybody likes talking about that just because it's a fun phrase. They oh, force majeure. <laughs> Sounds like to me, it sounds like a very tasty sandwich, but uh, yeah, I for, it sounds, for like, to me, it's yeah, that sounds good. It could be like Thor's other weapon, like, there's a lot of things, that yeah, could it's be. French, it's French Thor's weapon. He's, <laughs> he swings in, it's like a baguette with a big ham on the end. Um, no offense <laughs> to the French people, of course not, but I think what, but the interesting thing too is like, oh, they want to wipe out all these expensive overall deals with everyone, and that's why they're doing the strike, and then as soon as they wipe those out, they'll come back. And the problem with that thought is one, they will lose more money than they save doing Mm -hmm. that plan because it will take so long to enact the force majeure. They will have lost more money than they would have gotten back if they had just made like if then then get it, then making the deal. So so I don't think that financially that it's this master plan of like, let's make them all mad, make everybody go on strike so we can force majeure. Because Mm -hmm. the other thing is all of those people, the people who have very expensive overall deals are very talented and in demand. So if you cancel the deal of some one name famous showrunner or show creator, mm-hmm. as soon as the strike's over, someone's going to want that person to work for them. And yeah. guess what they're going to need to give them? An overall deal. And and so even if you've said, oh, well, now that we canceled them all, they're all a little bit less. You're talking about you're building that on a framework of a much better contract. Yeah. So. So it is the, the the idea that there's a master strategy to just rely totally on force majeure. Maybe there's some people who think that, but you, you know, you are you are cutting off your leg, you know, mm-hmm. to for for this victory of freeing yourself for some deals, which which uh, I don't think that's what's happening. I just think there really is a moment where large venture capitalist owned, stock price driven, tech uh, valley labor people thought that they could do to artists what they have done unfortunately to so many other work sectors Mm -hmm. and they did not realize that one that would absolutely break the model that made everyone financially successful and two they would frustrate and insult an industry so thoroughly that the withholding of labor was able to completely cease the only product you make in the industry Mm -hmm. no absolutely and it does feel like this is you know, you bring up a really good point about, you know, we've seen things like Uber and and like all these like venture capitalists basically doing, um, you know, their big, bold ideas are like, let's pay people less and keep them down and not give them health care. And they, you know, try to bring that to an industry that, you know, the chants are right. L.A. is a union town, everything in, in New York as well, like everything that we are, this industry is built on is union labor. So it feels like this is one of the only sectors, unfortunately, that's like prepared to at least be able to to fight back to this kind of degree. And I think we should take advantage of, of the fact that, yes, there are people in this industry, not, I mean, 
Uh, I think people think TV writers are rich. Not me, not my friends. <laughs> We're all like, uh, we. I mean, this is people who've been saving parts of paychecks in case there was a strike. People who are, you know, I know writers who are already applying for food stamps. You know, mm -hmm. um. So the we're not all in the same way that it's it, I think it is like the NBA again, where you're like, well, you're in the NBA and you're rich. And it's like this guy is on a hundred and twenty thousand dollar a year contract. Twenty percent of that goes to agents and managers. Then he has to buy all the gear, do his transportation, buy a set, rent a second place in the city he doesn't live in, but he plays in and feed his family on like fifty thousand dollars a year. Cool. Yeah. He's really killing it up there like a guy on a Supermax. There's, you know, the middle class in basketball has been hollowed out and the middle class in Entertainment's been hollowed out where you have people either who are mega rich or on these deals. But like you talked about with Uber, again, I think like th that's not a that's not a comparison that's made lightly. It's not a bunch of people who are, you know, like white collar job people looking at Uber and being like, oh, we don't want to be like Uber. It's like, do you know anyone who owns a cab medallion who has a cab who drives a cab and has driven a cab for 20 years? Have you talked to them about what Uber did to their business? Have mm -hmm. you talked to the guys who own the, the, the people who own your local restaurant about how their delivery has been screwed, how it has changed their restaurant, the way that the DoorDash works. Uh, it's one of the things that I am very happy about in the pandemic is that so many local restaurants in New York moved back to hiring a delivery guy hmm. because you can pay a delivery guy to go to everywhere in your delivery area and you don't lose any fee. You don't get an unrealistic delivery time. There's all this stuff where, you know, Uber's telling someone it's going to get there in this time. Then they're mad at your business because the app said it was going to be here in this time and it affects your rating and that you lose business with this anonymous middleman who never has to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. You're never mad at Uber, the company. You're mad at your driver. You're yeah. never mad at DoorDash, the company. You're mad at your DoorDash. They've taken all of the frustration of, of the company and put it on a person who isn't even an employee. Yeah. They are an independent contractor. And that is, that's why I think this fight is not just, it is about us getting a very specific contract, which we have laid out and have failed to respond to. Mm -hmm. But the, the animus behind this that you're seeing across the industry is, the dignity of our work is being destroyed. Mm -hmm. Owning a cab is a career because you can own that cab and pay off that medallion and make money and have that be your career. And you can buy a house on that and you can live in New York City. You can feed your family. And then those guys are lured in by Uber who says, no, no, this is unlimited profits and there's no medallion. Oh, but there is. You have to get here this fast and you have to do this and you all have to turn off your app at the same time to drive the price up and all this other BS that is is making you run circles of labor more than you had to do because there's no dignity of work. You are now just a gig worker. So when we say gig worker, it is not in any derisive way of like, oh, God, a delivery guy. It's that a delivery dude should be making an hourly wage working for that restaurant and getting tips. Yeah. And they should be getting the, the tips for those deliveries. They should not be an employee for a different company that takes a huge cut out of the restaurant. And then they're, they have to do a bunch. If no one orders delivery, they just don't make any money. That's yeah. BS. You know, if, if you should be, I believe in that subsidiarity of employment and of the power of local business. I think both parties, political parties in America seem to very much want to laud local business, talk about how important shopping local is and shopping small. Well, these are the companies that are destroying small business and they're mm -hmm. trying to destroy and they've moved from that now to try to, destroy the greatest entertainment product in the world which if you work in the industry you realize is a lot of small businesses a small mm -hmm. production house a small editing company a small agency with actors a small group of you know a local of IATSE and they're just trying to tear all these things apart in that in that same way and we're not going to let it happen you are one of the I think I think you might be the first late night writer I've had on this on this uh podcast and I've talked to 
Yeah, I'm, I'm primarily on the feature side. I've tried to lay out a little bit of our issues. Uh, I've spoken with sitcom and drama writers for television. I would love to hear a little bit about your perspective on the issues that late night writers in particular are facing in this new era and what you're trying to address in the contract in particular uh, with streaming and with that proposal for, what was it, 13 day contracts or something like that? No, their proposal was single day contracts. Oh, great. Worse. Okay. Got it. They proposed, they, they proposed a day right in late night television, Got which it. if you've ever worked in late night is not something a serious person or a person interested in the show being successful would ever propose mm -hmm. because it is like drafting a new basketball team every day and mm -hmm. saying that that's your team. The idea of, of the voice of a show People knowing the host's voice, bringing their own voice, having uh, knowing the shorthand, and again, being able to make a television show in eight hours, you have to know and trust the people you work with. Mm -hmm. The idea that you would be swapping those people around every day is an idea born of someone who either does not understand how late night television is made or does not care if it's good. Mm -hmm. And my fear is that it's the second one because you have vice presidents of giant streaming companies saying that they don't believe in quality. Yeah. They don't believe that, you know, things aren't good or bad. There's just a lot of people out there with taste, which is what someone who does not understand artists says. Mm -hmm. That is just fun. To, like every artist thinks there are good and bad things because they think their things are good. And if they thought their th things were bad, they wouldn't bring them to you to try to make money off of them. Right. They're bringing you their good ideas because there are good and there are bad ideas. Mm -hmm. um, with, but, but beyond the day rate, it's, it's, that's the problem is we're not in an issue where it's like you take the day rate off and everything makes sense. It's that late night writers are not even asking for massive increases in what we're paid. We are asking that what we're paid in streaming is the same as what we're paid in television because the shows are the same. And this is something that the AMPTP was fine to do in 2014, nine years ago. They decided to transfer the minimums over for for uh, 30 minute and hour long shows. Mm hmm. And now, now nine years later, they go, this is unprecedented. How could we ever do this? How would we even know what, how would we know how the shows worked? Because they're on streaming. So how would we know if a show was a, a late night show that came out every day? Or how would we know if it came out every week? Well, mm. you'd know because you're making the show. They know how many times the Daily Show comes out. They know it so much they can put it in the name. <laughs> Last week tonight, how often does that come out? We actually knew it ahead of time because we put it in the name. And there's this idea, but this is the example that keeps getting used. And I, I use it because um, we were so particularly insulted um, by the MPTP about it was the idea that, that Late Night with Seth Meyers is shot at 30 Rock in a studio with an audience and with, you know, the cameras and the desk and everything. The Amber Ruffin show used the same studio, the same audience seats, the same cameras, the same crew, and the same cue card guy. Mm -hmm. Because that show is on Peacock, there are no guarantees for minimum pay, for length of pay. There are no residual. There are no residuals built off of those episodes. There, none of the same protections apply because it's on Peacock, which right. is also where you can watch Late Night with Seth Meyers. It does not matter the delivery service. We are making the same show. Inside Amy Schumer was a sketch show hosted or starring Amy Schumer. It was on Comedy Central. It had protections. Then Inside Amy Schumer came back on Paramount Plus. It had none of the protections. Hmm. They're the same. They're these are literally sometimes literally the, the same, same show. show. Yeah. And they're and what they're saying is, well, how in the how could we pay blah blah blah? I went into this, and a lot of late night writers did wondering, you know, are they 
are they becoming disenchanted with late night? Are they moving away from it? The studios, you mm. know, and not just that the appendix a shows, and this is deep NBA thing, but appendix a is game shows, daytime shows like Martha Stewart living shout out to Martha. Um, <laughs> You know, but yeah, things like Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, soap operas, Days of Our Lives is one of the most successful shows on Peacock. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like things like soaps, all of this kind of content. They want to make more of it. And what they want to do is buy low and sell high. They yeah. want to convince us that we should take pennies on the dollar to make it so then they can turn around and use it to create must see live television. Every one of these streamers is about to bring ads back. And mm -hmm. when they do, they need you to sit through the ads. And the way to get you to sit through the ads is to put out stuff that's on every day. I got to see my mm -hmm. stories. I got to see what's on the late night show. I got to watch this live sketch show. You know, those kind those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so for late night, the ask is so clear. We have minimums. Give a, Those are the minimums we need in streaming. We're making you the same shows. You need to pay us the same. There's not a lot of wiggle room here. Yeah. You, you mentioned you're working on a project. I saw this on your Instagram as well. You're working on a project with late night writers during the strike with, um, you said that was called late night TK or it's called uh, contract TK and TK contract is a TK. late night. It's a journalism and late night thing. TK means to come. Right. And you use it so you can find empty spaces in your script, essentially. <laughs> totally. Um, what tell, tell me a little bit about that. How can people watch it? What? Yeah. Is it, or is it a WGA yeah, so, thing or is it something you're putting no together? no this is this is a very unofficial not official not WGA it's just um I love late night I love mm -hmm. it um in a way that may might be fanatic fanatical not everyone even who writes late night is like all I want to ever do is late night and I, I'd like to do other things but I love late night television I believe mm -hmm. in it as an art form and the people who do it and I wanted to provide it a way to one, respond to the studio's PR because eventually they will hire a PR firm and they're going to try to pull some stuff and there need to be late night writers who are very good at pointing that out. Mm -hmm. I want to keep morale up among people while we're out on the picket lines and try to give them something funny. And also late night writers just have to make jokes. Otherwise, we just we ran it to our spouses and they ask us to leave. <laughs> uh, so we have to do so. So, yeah, we've created this show. It comes out once a week. It's going to come out on Thursdays. Um, and it is essentially there's uh, writers from at least six shows and there's crew from several other late night shows who volunteered their services. You know, we've got editors volunteering and directors and sound people and, and graphics people from all these different shows. It's the community coming together, volunteer, unpaid, not looking for money, just trying to make something um, for the late night community and for the larger guild community. Mm -hmm. that's amazing that's really cool and that starts uh by the time this episode's there it's already starting so every yeah where, can, where yeah. can people watch it so you can go to youtube's uh contract tk on youtube you can search for it and by the time you've heard this we should hopefully have an instagram and uh tiktok and twitter have our social media accounts up and be and be good to go that i'm not great at social media so i'm i'm getting some help <laughs> on that but I couldn't um, tell. Yeah, you, so we'll, we'll, I couldn't tell that you're not good at it just because your Instagram and Twitter names are not are a name that isn't you. <laughs> yes, I, I I'm that bad. Where my I wanted those names a long time ago because that was my fake uh, that was my fake name, and I've I've kept it ever since. So I'm Gary Jackson on social media. Um, but no, I, I yeah, it's we've got a lot of uh, we got it's just it's very fun to get yeah. to to let it rip and do the thing that we love to do, and hopefully, um, it's just kind of helping the guild and helping other people understand what we're doing who was your late night guy growing up who got you into uh late night comedy um i was uh i mean snl was huge uh, uh it's a 
I, I will give you a quick version because we're almost out of time. But um, uh, the the traditional ones, obviously Conan and Letterman, huge for me growing mm -hmm. up. Also, I grew up in Arizona, so everything was on an hour earlier. So Conan was on at eleven thirty. A lot mm. easier to watch that. Yeah, as a kid. So um, so that shout out to Arizona and and the time zones. <laughs> uh, but the the other thing is we um, I I I watched a lot of weird like um the Red Green Show was a mm -hmm. weird late night kind of show in this conceit of a cabinet. It's a Canadian show that was really big. I mean, I think you think about Beekman's world, which was a children's mm -hmm. like science show, but that yeah. was also all these shows that were framed as a show inside of a show. I watched so much of that, that that idea itself, like you're watching a show that knows it's a show. Mm -hmm. Even Pee Wee Pee Wee's Playhouse, you know, all of these shows that were like, Hey, we're making a show here. The weird Al show, which was, you know, like even that, like, all of these things were were huge for me, and that became kind of the the version of late night that I am most enchanted with. Is not exactly the shiniest production, which is very good, and I, I laud that, and I think it's good. But it really is not the clean, smooth presentation. It is the it is the hey, we're making a show, and you know we're making a show, we know we're making a show, and we're, that's what you're going to watch us do that. In addition to everything else you're doing, you also host a WJE's podcast on writing. Uh, you've interviewed people like Tony Kushner, like Ryan Johnson, like Seth Meyers, like Ryan Coogler. Um, what have you taken away from your guests that you apply to your own writing? Um, yeah, that's all. I don't know why I've trailed off that way. <laughs> I Well, okay. Uh, to clear, it was Tony Gilroy, not Tony Kushner. Only because... Oh, oh God. Um, I wasn't looking at my notes. That, I was thinking no, Tony was Gilroy. That's, I said Tony that's Kushner. One of because that was one of Tony Tony's interview was one of my favorites. Um, it was a great interview. Was, I listened to that one. Yeah, it was. Um, I, I, the thing I've gotten to learn from it one is um how to talk to somebody for an hour, which for me the big challenge was realizing oh an hour isn't as long as you think or forty five minutes isn't as long as you think because mm -hmm. um I, I like to really get into the weeds. I I think um a lot of interviews with writers you end up talking about the end product, but I'm very interested. Um, not as much in the like, what time do you get up and what time do you write? Sure. But the idea of like, how do you convince yourself that it's okay to cut an idea that you love, but you don't have time for, mm -hmm. you know, like the, like, I think I talked to Ryan Cooler about that as you know, these ideas of, well, how do you, you know, like when you're really in your own head and process, what are the rules you have for yourself that aren't the procedural, I've got to sit down and write and do this, but like, what is writing to you? What does the music of writing sound like in your head? Mm -hmm. uh, because I think all of us are so different. And by doing that, we can all learn little tricks from each other um, in how to remind ourselves how super freaking cool it is that we get to write stuff as our job. Because I think if you can find a way to spark that again, then all those frustrations of staring at a screen and stuff, they they there's so much less when you're like, oh, right, I get to do this for my job. Absolutely. We have about a minute left. So I do want to give you this opportunity right now. Where can people follow you? Is there anything else you want to plug? Uh, before yeah, we run out um, of time? Follow WJ West and WJ East uh, for strike updates. Follow me at Gary Jackson on Twitter and Instagram. Follow Contract that. TK on YouTube and on socials. Follow my Star Wars podcast, Yub Nub Pod, which I do with some other late night writers. And um, please, please, please pray for the Phoenix Suns. <laughs> Greg, with our little bit of time that we have left, I do want to get to know you even better, get to know you on a deeper level. What do you think happens after we die? I think it cuts off just like a Zoom. Wow. Man, I wish that was timed out perfectly because that would have timed out so good <laughs> if we just got cut off there. Um, yeah. To you, what is the meaning of life? Uh, 
uh, do your best. Mm. That's all you can ask. Do your best. If you could live forever, would you want to? No, zero percent. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> when you do pass away, as we all eventually do, what do you want people to say about you? He tried and did his best. Mm. That's all I can ask. Your meeting has ended. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to 39 Minute Conversations, hosted and produced by Brian T. Arnold. Music by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tune in for new episodes and don't forget to rate and review. If you didn't like what you heard, please don't do any of that. That's okay too. Thank you and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and be well.